Birding means adventure, and the American Birding Association and Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Tours are at it again. In July of 2019, we will explore Colombia, the ultimate paradise for birders with almost 2,000 species, including more hummingbird species than any other country. We're excited to gather again to see our friends while also raising important funds for the ABA's conservation and community initiatives. Pre-register now for what is certain to be an amazing time. Tanagers, parrots, ant pittas, and the ABA family await you a short flight away. Get more information at aba.org travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and I, I am excited to be here with you at the end of January. Uh, are any of you at the Space Coast Birding Festival in Titusville, Florida right now? The day that this podcast is scheduled to go live is right at the beginning of Space Coast. The ABA is there. I am not there, unfortunately, but Jeff and Liz are at Space Coast. We have a booth. Please stop by, say hello, get a patch. We have these awesome ABA 50th anniversary patches with the Tropic Bird on them, of course. You put them on your birding paraphernalia, help celebrate the ABA's 50th year with us. Space Coast is a, is a very fun festival. I've, I've only been there one time, but there are few places in the ABA area that are better than Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge and all the areas around it this time of year, especially if you like waterfowl and gulls or even just you know, one of those things. And this weekend will be a pretty super time to put some Brevard County hotspots on your fantasy birding list. Have you heard of fantasy birding? It's, it's a thing now. It's like a, a big year without having to leave your couch. You choose a, a hotspot on eBird every day and everything that is seen that day at that spot goes on a list. I, I know I have some fantasy birding fans listening to the podcast. I, I have not tried it. I acknowledge that. I'm always sort of skeptical of new kind of techie birding things. At least right up to the point where I end up, you know, jumping in wholeheartedly. I guess that makes me sort of a, a technophile luddite, if that is a thing. I, I, you know, if that sounds impossible or maybe oxymoronic, remember that birders are able to accept that greater peewees exist, you know, without too much trouble. Besides, I already have the Google Street View birding and what's this bird and you know the granddad of them all, eBird itself, to deal with. I, I think I have a lot of birding games and barely enough time to bird as it is, though I do find the accounts of birders, I think this was um, former podcast guest Drew Weber recounted waiting for Tuft the Duck to show up on his fantasy list, and then he didn't see it, and then going out and getting it himself, which is you know legitimately the fun thing to do about these games, that they often precipitate actual birding, and that that's great. I don't know, maybe I'll try it once the Google Street View birding thing starts seeing diminishing returns. That, that group is over 900 species recently, so it could be a while. On the show today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the recent American Ornithological Society proposal to change the name of McCown's Long Spur, and about bird names in general, sort of working towards my universal theory of bird common names. Uh, anyway, I think there's a, there's a fair bit to unpack there. But first, eBird developer and researcher Tom Auer is here to talk about the amazing new status and trends charts on the eBird website. I don't think I am overselling it when I say that these are the most accurate representations of bird status and distribution ever created throughout your field guides, folks. Well, not all of them, just, just the maps. All that after this week's Redbirds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of January 2019. The early part of 2019 has seen a bunch of noteworthy birds. I'll try to get to as many as I can in this space. An ABA code for red-flanked blue tail at a UCLA library in Los Angeles, California is an early contender for Vagrant of the Year. This is California's third record, but it is the first record on the mainland and therefore the first chaseable record for the state. And a lot of birders have taken advantage of that and gone to see it. Big thanks are due to the UCLA Clark Library and the staff there for being such great and enthusiastic hosts for the birders that came to see the blue tail and of course the blue tail itself. It was not that long ago that we talked about a field fair in British Columbia and now the province has hosted another East Asian thrush. This time it is an ABA code for dusky thrush in Nanaimo. This was a third record for the province. It, it has been a super thrushy year so far. Along with those BC birds, there was also an Arizona first white-throated thrush. That was an ABA code 4 seen into this week. This is the first ABA area record away from Texas for this middle American equivalent of our familiar robin. Speaking of Texas, there was also a rufous-backed robin in Uvalde, Texas this month. Most records of that species come from Arizona, so it's odd that it is in Texas and the white-throated thrush, which has most records from Texas, is in Arizona. Seems like they got that a little backwards. We'll let Texas lead with other first records to note as a yellow grosbeak, ABA code 4 in Konkin, Texas, is potentially a state first. There's no doubt about the identification, but that species is always a tough sell as it is a popular one in the cage bird trade. We'll see how people feel about that going forward. Tennessee's first record of Virginia's warbler was seen in Sullivan County. Ohio becomes the last Great Lakes bordering state or province to host a slatey-backed gull. That long-awaited first was seen in Stark County, south of Cleveland, and again in Summit County. In New Jersey, a black Phoebe was photographed in Sussex County. That is one of very few records of that species in the eastern part of the continent. And in the District of Columbia, D.C.'s first record of purple gallinule was photographed on the windowsill of a D.C. office building. That is just a little bit of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period for the whole thing. Check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. Or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare and on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Cornell's eBird has been around for 16 years now, which is kind of extraordinary to think about. And 2019 finds it as ingrained in the birding community, especially in North America, as it's ever been. With more users than ever plugging more data than ever into the project, we've seen more and more discoveries facilitated by all this bird data. In the last few weeks of 2018, eBird launched a new status and trends uh, part of their website, I guess, you know, database, maybe the best way to describe it. Essentially, it's this incredibly detailed spatial and temporal information on bird populations, combining eBird data with NASA data that takes into account land cover, topography. It, it's really, really cool stuff. And uh, Cornell researcher Tom Auer is in the middle of it. Tom, th thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, uh, these maps are... I mean, I, I kind of ran out, ran out of superlatives to describe them. They're just really cool. Um, what has it been like working on this and sort of watching these movements of birds reveal themselves? Yeah, it's been really exciting. Uh, you know, it's it's one of these processes where things have kind of uh, 
develop slowly over a, a long period of research. Some people have been working on these products for 10 years. And then in the last couple of years, we've uh, really been able to improve the quality of the uh, estimates we make. And so it's been exciting to to do these for a whole bunch of species and then look at the products and and go maybe look at cedar waxwing, for example, and look at the <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, year-round animation and go, wow, they just disappear from the, you know, like uh, Illinois, Indiana, kind of the north central core. Corn Belt. Yes. That's funny. I was I was actually going to talk yeah. about that map. <laughs> That's what I, I pulled up. And yeah, it's amazing. I, I, do you know why that is? I, I'm getting ahead of myself. but do No, you know? that's yeah, we, uh, we've talked about it a bit internally. And, and I think there's uh, probably just a lack of uh, ornamental fruit trees, broadly distributed, or native fruit okay. trees, fruiting yeah, trees. Cool. Uh, you know, it's, that area is mostly corn. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, the model represents the, the, the NASA data represents that well, the model picks up that it's corn, uh, and soy huh. and, uh, you know, it's not a place for cedar waxwings in the winter. Huh. That's wild. Uh, you know, without, without going too much into the weeds, uh, how does, how does all this work? Yeah. Yeah. I won't go too into the weeds for sure. Uh, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a technical process, but at, at a high level, basically what we do is we, um, take all your eBird checklists and we, we mash them up with, uh, uh, NASA data and, and the key ones are land cover, uh, elevation. Um, and, and those, we take those pieces and combine them. And then we put them through this, this modeling workflow, uh, where we, we break space and time up into small pieces and fit, uh, hundreds of thousands of small models. So there may be, you know, one model that covers June for approximately Iowa, Illinois, Missouri. And that's just one estimate that we make. Uh, and then we, we do that hundreds of thousands of times and bring all the predictions back together so that it's an average, it's an ensemble. So we, we have good certainty about a prediction in a particular place and time. And so when, when the model runs through all that, it's estimating uh, presence, absence, whether species is there or not. Right. Uh, and then it's also estimating an abundance. And that's how many birds you would expect to see on a one kilometer, one hour uh, traveling uh, checklist uh, by a skilled e-birder at the optimal time of day for detection of that species. Yeah, that's kind of the bread and butter of the eBird checklist, uh, presence, absence, and how many. Yeah. Um, it's really neat to see how, you know, when I, when I talk, I'm, I've been an eBirder for a while. When I talk about eBird and try and encourage people to use it, um, I, I talk a lot about the importance of doing presence absence, that little, you know, question at the end, like, have you, are you recording all the species you've seen or heard? And of course, you know, trying to encourage estimates on numbers, it's really neat to see how that, how that really works on something as complicated as these maps. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the complete checklist concept is critical. That's the we don't we don't use incidental data for these. We can't use that without the that you know knowing whether that's all the species you recorded or right. not. Uh, and then and then yeah, giving a count estimate. And I think sometimes you know I, as a birder myself, I experience a lot of people who are afraid to estimate a number. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, having information about the the general magnitude of count was it one? Was it ten? Was it one hundred? If you're close to that order of magnitude, that's still incredible incredibly important information for us. Right. So this is available for, you know, just over a hundred species currently. Do you think this sort of thing will be available for, I don't know, every species in North America? Or are there sort of limitations in, I don't know, server power or even something as basic as just on the ground information for some species? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple factors there. I'll, I'll tell you what we're planning for 2019. We're going to shoot for oh, super. 500 species. 
Um, All right. We're going to try to make estimates across the entire Western Hemisphere. So uh, this is something we've tested. We can do. Hopefully now we have enough data uh, to cover that extent for most species. Uh, so we're going to we're going to try You know, if there's a species like uh, Franklin's gull, for example, that winters in South America, hopefully we'll pick up that distribution really well. You know, the limiting factors are data coverage. So we're having trouble with high Arctic species. We don't have a lot of right. data there. Uh, yeah, Cuba. People there. <laughs> right. Exactly. Not a lot of people there. Cuba has been a challenge uh, because of their, you know, lack of Internet access, Am Amazon Basin. Uh, and then the other factor is uh, computation. These are really computationally intensive models. Each species basically takes, you know, if you imagine one computer core on your machine, imagine it running for 7,500 hours just to do one species. Jeez. Uh, Jeez. And, and so we use uh, we used Amazon Web Services this year to scale that, and we're, we're hoping we can do something similar uh, next year to, to generate these results for those 500 species. Wow, that's really cool. What are some of the things that you've discovered while working on this? You know, maybe stuff you didn't know or stuff that you, you know, might have known intuitively, but, you know, having the data there sort of revealed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that pop out from looking at our abundance maps uh, that are kind of new. Sometimes there might be really subtle um, phylogenetic uh, gradients that pop out just based on abundance. Uh, for example, if you look at American crow, uh, you can kind of see that dividing line between this species concept called Pacific crow and all the American crows to the east. So we those things really come into focus. But I think um, the, the most important, you know, revelations that we have are, are trend maps this year. Um, this is, you know, probably our newest, most exciting product. And that's, you know, it's being able to look at the period of uh, 2008 to 2016 and calculate uh, you know, population changes over that period. And, and that's something that's even, it's hard to intuit, you know, people have a yeah. sense, maybe these are declining, but to quanti quantify that and be able to display yeah. at, at 25 kilometer resolution that birds are declining or increasing in an area is, um, that's been really exciting and new for us. Huh. What birds are seeing their populations change that you might not, we, we might think of them as common species, um, but their populations are sort of changing in subtle ways or maybe even not so subtle ways. Yeah, there's definitely quite a few that have popped out. Um, a number of, you know, the, the uh, kind of things we think of as common, like eastern bluebird uh, or mm -hmm. blue jay, um, Baltimore oriole, um, are having significant portions of their range uh, heavily impacted. Uh, especially in the you know in the eastern United States uh, with Baltimore Oriole, for example, or with um, bluebirds. So we are seeing it across common species. I think two of the most striking examples uh, that are on the website right now are uh, indigo bunting and ruby crowned kinglet. Uh, very significant wow. declines across the entire extent of their range. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the extent of it is kind of, uh, surprising and, and, you know, frankly, it's a little bit depressing, but it's good that we're able to generate this information so that, uh, conservation can start to act. Do you have any idea perhaps why those populations are declining? I realize that's a little bit taking, you know, that's the next step in the research. You hand off this, right. this data to, you know, another set of researchers who are, who actually go into the whys rather than the what's. Yeah, ex exactly. We're. We're focused on the, you know, the the where and the how much right now, you know, and then right. people can kind of hypothesize about that. I mean, I think the ruby crown kinglet situation is likely tied to changes in the boreal forest. Um, you know, anytime we look at one of these trend maps and we see the entire range is, is changing, uh, we kind of think, well, maybe it might be the other season. 
you know, the, right. the, the breeding season is having an impact. And so there could be climatic changes in the boreal forest that are really impacting uh, ruby crown kinglet uh, breeding success. Hmm. And th that might be, you know, be reflected in the wintering grounds. Uh, similar with indigo bunting, that is almost certainly a um, a wintering ground issue. There, you know, their their uh, populations are so concentrated in Central right. America yeah, and Mexico during the winter, so that if there's an impact in a you know in a smaller area, it's gonna it's gonna have a bigger effect on indigo bunting. So, um, hmm. those are some of the things we've 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 tossed around as ideas why why those species are being impacted so heavily. Do you have any any maps that you just think are are really cool, like really interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love uh, I love Rufus hummingbird because you get to see the um, circular migrations. Oh, right. If, you, if yeah. you look at the Rufus hummingbird abundance map, uh, there's four colors on the map when we combine them all together, uh, and you get to see the breeding zone in the Pacific Northwest. You get to see the the fall flyway in yellow throughout Colorado and the Eastern Rockies. They winter in Mexico, and then you get to see that burst of uh, green on the uh, California and the West Coast, and when they migrate up in the in the spring to the West. So I think it's really neat to be able to tease out those sorts of patterns. Uh, I love that one. Yeah, particularly. I totally agree. Those kind of circular migration maps. Blackpool warbler was always one of my favorite ones too. When mm -hmm. you guys did that, um, where you can see the huge push you know up the up the middle of the continent in spring and then you know right along the side of the of the east coast in fall it's just so so neat to see that stuff and almost i mean not real time but but see it visualized in that way right uh, really right. makes it come alive yep yeah some other exciting examples include uh like a uh uh, Orchard Oriole has um, uh, some very different timing of uh, migration arrival during spring between the eastern and the western populations. The eastern birds come in first, and then you see this pulse of the western birds come in another, you know, couple of weeks later than the eastern birds do. Um, and the same thing actually happens with a uh, black-throated gray warbler. You can see uh, the Pacific Northwest birds arrive first, and then the interior west birds arrive later. Uh, you know, and it's that kind of even that you know you know sub month detail that you know we've really really never seen the full picture of in you know in a map, right? Some people may suspect these things, but to document it and quantify it in that way is really exciting. It's it's really cool. You you talked about sort of the the sub month detail, but sort of the the very detailed spatial uh, changes are really cool as well. I was looking at the wood duck map, in, mm -hmm. for instance, and you can see like uh, where they the high elevations they're like big holes in the map <laughs> where they don't go. Right. And you can also kind of follow the the river, the waterways, their the high concentrations along the waterways and lower as you get further away, especially in the Midwest. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, we're, we're really lucky to be able to use uh, this NASA data uh, at a mm -hmm. 2.8 kilometer resolution, which is, you know, the highest resolution anybody is kind of tried to map it at that and and i think you know without that we'd be looking at a much coarser broader picture and we wouldn't get right. some of those fine details that are that we're, you know we're lucky to have that information you know that's one of the things that's most noticeable about these maps is how they differ from you know traditional range maps you see in field guides which are as you say you know a lot less specific uh, do you think that these sorts of gis generated maps will replace conventional broad range maps and field guides or they simply do detail to work in that context well, you know, we've generated we've generated both, uh, you know, abundance maps here where you get to see that that abundance value to 2.8 kilometer resolution. And we've also uh, worked to recreate a range map where we just show presence absence and we, we kind of coarsen it up a little bit. I would like to think that maybe, you know, the era of hand drawn range maps is coming to a close. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, data, we've got a giant pile of data to work with here. We've got a data driven process. Uh, it's quantifiable. We can measure how accurate these maps are. Um, I think, you know, that, that, that era is starting to close where people are going to draw little blobs around places, you know, that, that work is now going to be done by eBirders who go out and correct these maps by submitting data where they're not, they're not right. Or, um, or, you know, having people, reviewers change their filters to, uh, to match, you know, what's actually happening. No, I, I think that stuff is really cool. It also is you know, much more useful from a conservation perspective because you can actually see these places that are so critical for some of these species. Uh, the wood thrush, for instance, right. um, you can just see on the map where it's just so bright in the uh, you know the Appalachian, the Ohio River Valley, which is such a core part of their range. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a you know Corson field map, field guide map, you'd think that uh, they're you know equally common everywhere across <laughs> the eastern half of the continent, which we which we know is not true. Yeah, and that's also especially evident in the uh, wintering range maps. You know, we get to really see the core forest areas that the species are really yeah. in high abundances compared to everywhere else. So, um, and, and that is, you know, starting to prove to be a really high conservation value. You know, other groups are starting to pick up some of this data and, and use it to prioritize landscapes or, you know, parts within states for, um, you know, those high abundance areas. Where are you going to protect the most birds? Right. So, so how can, how can regular birders use this sort of information to inform their own birding? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, studying the, uh, animations to, to get a sense of timing, uh, you know, that's one of the key parts of uh, any, uh, you know, distributional knowledge of a birder, knowing when things arrive, where they arrive. Uh, I think the abundance maps with that information that shows you where they're mm-hmm. in high high abundances versus low abundance will give you a sense of, you know, especially if you want to find a species, you've got a better chance if there's more of them, but also uh, just understanding, uh, you know, what the, the general pattern within your state or region is. Um, I think it is, is helpful to, to general birders. And then also, you know, you can find it's an opportunity to kind of go out and explore. Maybe there, we've picked up some areas that people haven't found a species in before. It's an opportunity to go look for them there or say, Hey, you guys got this wrong and go, go kind of, you know, fill in the data for us, help, help us fix, uh, an area where we may, may be over extrapolated. I, I give, um, I give talks to local bird groups about internet resources for birding. And in the last few years, these talks have increasingly become like how to use eBird talks because so much <laughs> of the free resources online have in some way associated with Cornell and eBird. That's not a complaint at all. You guys do so many useful things. But uh, what else would you want to know about bird populations and movements that can be gleaned from eBird that you haven't been able to do just yet? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that we're really starting to delve into more is uh, phenology information. So, you know, the animations you see here give us some hints about timing, but we haven't really studied that in in a, in a lot of depth. So, uh, you know, birders forever have been really attuned to arrival dates and departure dates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a, a next step for us is to kind of tease that information apart, um, see if it's changing, see how it's changing, where it's changing, um, and so, so, you know, having people continue to enter records about arrival and departure, especially if you're using, you know, complete checklists is, um, going to help us, uh, more with that sort of thing. Yeah. Are you going to, I mean, you'll be able to obviously compare year to year. That's important if we're discussing the, you know, how climate change is affecting migratory birds. Have you been able to see a little bit of that even, even in the, I mean, what is it only two or three years that you've been doing this sort of high level data crunching, I guess. 
Yeah, we're just starting to touch on that. It's um, it's something we've uh, we've got some projects going on right now. Um, kind of matching. One of the things to do is match up with um, the remote sense information about greenness indices. So how green is the landscape? And so we can oh, kind of cool. look at the eBird data and look at the greenness index and and do some statistics to see how well they're corresponding or if they're not corresponding. So it's just you know we're just on the edge of that, but I'm hoping uh, in 2019 or 2020 we'll kind of add some products to the website that um, reveal what's going on with with those phenology patterns. Will you be able to change the maps from year to year based on changes in the NASA data set on like uh, land cover or development and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So this year um, we are pulling in data through 2018. So that's both eBird data and NASA data. Um, and so every year, you know, there's a new batch of better right. uh, NASA data and we'll pull that in and, and use that in our workflow so that we, we always have, you know, a better sense of, uh, you know, whether urban areas are changing or agricultural areas are changing and that informs, you know, the trend maps and the abundance maps. So it's a, it's a process of kind of continual updates and improvement. Tom Auer is a GIS, GIS developer for Cornell and eBird. He's behind the new incredibly detailed status and trends project at eBird. You can play around with them at uh, eBird.org slash science slash status and trends hyphen there. I'll have the link in the show notes. I, I encourage you to do so, but only if you're willing to kind of watch your day sort of slip away. Uh, thanks for explaining this stuff, Tom. Yeah, thank you so much. We always like to talk about the American Ornithological Society's classification committee proposals around here because it's often sort of a cool snapshot of the current state of birding taxonomy science. Plus, who doesn't like splits? Free birds, am I right? But this year, the AOS is tasked with considering some proposals that would change the bird names, which are always a little more, I don't know, controversial, interesting. I guess it depends on the birder. I've already mentioned a couple in an earlier podcast, the scientific subspecific name of red-shafted flicker evidently refers to a word that is considered an ethnic slur in Africa, and of course my ABA colleague Ted Floyd's proposal to eliminate the possessive S in bird names. Uh, for instance, Cooper's hawk would become Cooper hawk. But sort of under the radar, and maybe that's just me because it slipped by me when I did the ABA vlog recap for the first batch of proposals, was a proposal on McCown's longspur, that gray-headed short-grass prairie bird, arguably the least well-known of the North American longspurs. It sort of gets to an issue that I have with honorific names more generally, but there are, there are a lot of things going on in this one. The story of how McCown's Longspur got its name is pretty typical for the time period. Uh, John P. McCown was uh, a U.S. Army general. He was exploring, uh, in quotation marks, the West in the years before the American Civil War. He commonly collected birds. A couple he collected, incidentally, were determined to be a new species, one of which, the Longspur, obviously, was named for him by amateur ornithologist George Lawrence, who, incidentally, had a goldfinch named after him by John Casson who had a kingbird, an auklet, a vireo, a finch, and a sparrow named after him. And when you start to look at all this, it looks sort of like a pyramid scheme, but instead of money, it's ornithological legacy. Anyway, not long after collecting these birds, the Civil War breaks out. McCown resigns his U.S. Army commission, joins up on what is eventually the losing side, thankfully, the side that is defending the objectively terrible institution of slavery. And he wasn't just serving, he was a general... He was involved in a lot of early war campaigns. Apparently, he was not a great general. He gets cited for a lot of things like public drunkenness, among other things, though. It was General Braxton Bragg who took issue with him. 
And Bragg is widely acknowledged as one of the worst generals on either side of the conflict. So, you know, if Bragg is on one side, if you're on the other side, you probably weren't totally in the wrong. Anyway, if that aspect of his story interests you, you can subscribe to my other podcast, Whiskeyed Rebellions, in which I drink whiskey and talk about various rebellions against the U.S. government. So McCown gets suspended, declares the Confederacy a stinking cotton oligarchy. That is a direct quote from McCown. It doesn't do much of note in the latter half of the, of the U.S. Civil War, retires to teaching afterwards. So the issue is that, you know, now we're sort of in a period of time where we are having a bit of a public reckoning with how we as a nation think about memorializing former Confederates and the Confederate cause. And McCown is an easy target. McCown's Longspurt does have the distinction of being the only North American bird named after a Confederate. Not exactly the best sort of notoriety, though I will admit that it makes some sense for a bird with a gray head to be named after a general who wore a gray coat, though that is a bit of a historical accident. For me, it comes down to the question, you know, who are common names for? Are they for these long-dead ornithologists and their friends, or are they for birders in the here and now learning about the continent's bird life? And I acknowledge that sort of my phrasing of that question makes it pretty clear where I come down on this question. I don't like honorific names, partly because it puts us in this difficult position. You know, McCown is not great, but arguably not even the worst defender in North America. John Kirk Townsend of the Warbler and the Solitaire, I think he also has a storm petrel now, he robbed the graves of Native American tribes. He sent their skulls back east, and as of yet, those have not been repatriated. The famous J.J. Audubon, uh, had some sketchy doings with human remains as well. Charles Bendire of the Thrasher, he led violent assaults on Native American tribes in the West. If we go overseas, there are more. You look up Jules Vero sometime. It is shocking. I got most of this information from a blog post by Matthew Halley. Uh, link is in the show notes. It's worth checking out. So should we get rid of all honorific names? I mean, I would, yeah, if for no other reason that it avoids these sorts of issues completely. Aside from the fact that the namesakes are often problematic from our 21st century perspective, to me, the practice of naming birds after people is too much like a 19th century version of corporate sponsorship. There are a ton of birds named after benefactors, these benefactors of these ornithological expeditions, which to me is like discovering a new bird and selling the naming rights to like Home Depot, which, you know, might work if it's a woodpecker or a woodcreeper or something. Uh, but I don't think it's likely that we're going to get rid of these honorific names. So in the end, I guess I'm fairly ambivalent about this name change. I can live with either one. And if the name ends up being something like Shortgrass Longspur, which is the, the best of the alternate names I've heard, I'm, I'm okay with that. I like names that incorporate habitat and places, and that would do both. I think the move to fewer honorifics is generally a good one. But unless we're willing to go all out and make some real wholesale changes, I don't know if this piecemeal approach is the best way to go about it. But I think we can all agree that the worst case scenario would be a change to McCown Longspur. Sorry, Ted, I cannot go for that. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization and we'd love for you to become a member. We have an e-membership for $30, which is a great way to join the ABA. But if you want to join at the individual rate, which is $50, let us know in the comment section on the membership form and we would love to send you a 50-year anniversary patch. I talked about those at the top of the episode. Also, everyone who joins, renews, signs up for an ABA trip or event will be entered into a drawing for their choice of ABA bird guides from Scott and Nix. There are about 15 or so of them now. I've, I've lost count. So odds are we've got the one for you. Get more information at aba.org join. Hold on tight because we've got a lot of special thanks this time. That's what happens when you forget to do this for three episodes. So special thanks to 
Finn Tuamisto of Phoenix, Arizona, Jennifer Statton of Seabrook, South Carolina, Joshua Fecto of Kennebunkport, Maine, David Ferris of Coloma, Michigan, Brett Gleitzman of Flagstaff, Arizona, Catherine Carr of Hamden, Connecticut, Heidi Erland of North Bend, Washington, April and Tim Cote and their family from Scarborough, Maine, the Molizan and Peter Grund family of Lawrence, Kansas, Kenneth Trevenger of Bradenton, Florida, Matthew White of Reading, Pennsylvania, Anna Sickler of Los Angeles, California, Miriam Beyer of Brooklyn, New York, Keith Malay of San Francisco, California, Patrick Marr of Dublin, New Hampshire, Richard White of Del Mar, New York, Joel Martin of Pelham, Alabama, Richard Walker of New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, Matthew Schamberger of Clayton, Missouri, Amy Hausman of Naperville, Illinois, Francis Bullitt of Mirabel, Quebec, Ginianne Lichardi of Bellingham, Washington, Randy Walker of Abbotsford, British Columbia, Randall Coons of Crescent Springs, Kentucky, Kelly and Jake Smith of Wentzville, Missouri, Ann Hoover of Fort Worth, Texas, Timothy Condon of Pine, Colorado, and Robert Johnson of Albuquerque, New Mexico, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He notes that he wouldn't be against adding Western Union Kingbird to the ABA checklist should the company wire us some cash. Remember, Western Union is the fastest way to send vagrants worldwide. Technical production is by John Lowry. He is our advertising guy as well, and he is deep in negotiations for the McCormick Cinnamon Teal. Add spice to your eBird checklist today. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They note that yes, Brewer's Sparrow is named after ornithologist Thomas Mayo Brewer, but there's no reason to let Budweiser know that. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We don't want to spill the beans, but we're working on this blockbuster deal to change every bird with American in its common name to American Express. It's perfect because you can't run a big year without a high credit limit. I, for one, am heading out to look for the American Express Woodcock tonight. Remember, they're not saying paint. They're saying debt. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.